All right, well, good morning. Um, Pastor Booth asked if I would teach a short series this summer while they're dealing with some of the medical things, and so I wanted to do something that was related to the series we've been doing on the Heidelberg Catechism, and what I decided to do was take a, take a look at some of the early ecumenical councils where the creeds, such as the one we recited together this morning, the Nicene Creed, were formulated, and look at how did the church converge on the truths? I don't know if I can. I'll try. Do I have control of the, do I have control of the volume? It's on. It's on. The light's green. Huh. I would have thought that my voice was soft today. Try that. How's that? Better. Better? Okay. I'll try to speak up a little bit. <clears throat> I thought I had a loud enough voice, but not compared to Pastor Booth. So, the truths that we profess today about the Trinity and about the person of Jesus Christ, how did the church converge on those truths in the first centuries following Christ and the apostles? That's what I'd like to look at. Um, you may know there were seven what we call ecumenical councils. The reason they're ecumenical is because they were councils of what at the time was the entire church. So this was before the big split in 1054 between what became the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Eastern Church. So these were ecumenical councils. There were, there were seven of them. The first was Nicaea in uh, 325. Now, I don't think most of us probably actually don't know much about these uh, early councils. And it's interesting, there's a, the, the literature is absolutely enormous. There's a huge literature because these things have been studied and discussed ever since. But for some reason in the Protestant world, it's, my impression is we don't give too much attention to these. And I have a two-volume church history. It's a contemporary church history. It's a pretty popular one. It's by a, a fellow named Gonzalez. And his two-volume history of the church has one chapter, which is nine pages long, on the Council of Nicaea. But I think there's some interesting things to, uh, to look at here. So there, there, there are seven ecumenical councils. All seven of them were held in Constantinople, except for the first one, which was in Nicaea, and the last one, which was also in Nicaea, the middle one, which was in Chalcedon, and the one right before that, which was in Ephesus. Other than that, all of them were in Constantinople. <laughs> so there's the first council of Nicaea in 325. It's easy, to remember, it's easy to remember that date because 325 was the year of the council of Nicaea. So that one's easy to remember. Then the council of Constantinople, the first council of Constantinople in 381, the council of Ephesus, was in 431, so just about 100 years later from, from Nicaea. Chalcedon was in 451. The second council of Constantinople was about 100 years after Chalcedon in 553. Then the third council of Constantinople, I don't remember the date, and then the last, the seventh, was the second council of Nicaea in 787 AD. So it's about 500 years that these councils were happening. 
Yes, sure. Does, has the church historically seen these as parallel to what happens in Acts? That the, the, these councils are like just like what happened in Acts, and the apostles got together, and, or is it like a new thing? I think that was the model, uh, or that yeah, I think that's part of the model. Is that, and I, I think we still kind of look at it that way with our general assemblies today in, in our denomination. That in the early church there was this crisis, and the at the time, it was the apostles and the elders of the church got together in Jerusalem and had a meeting and made a decision about to address the issues. So uh, some of the questions that we might want to consider coming out of the Council of Nicaea is, uh, if the Trinitarians triumphed at Nicaea, how come Athanasius, who was the major figure defending the faith of Nicaea in the years that followed, why was Athanasius banished five separate times after the Council of Nicaea. If the Nicene position was ratified by Constantine, Emperor Constantine the Great, why was he baptized on his deathbed by an Arian bishop? And also, why were the Roman emperors predisposed toward Arianism, which was the heresy that was addressed at the Council of Nicaea? So these are some of the questions we'll look at today. Nicaea is kind of a suburb of Constantinople. Ephesus is in Turkey. Chalcedon is close to Constantinople. So they are all, they're all in the same vicinity, I believe, yes. So the, the context of the Council of Nicaea, the background, let's say, to this, what had existed for the church in the years leading up to the Council of Nicaea, from an intellectual standpoint, they were in the world of Greek philosophy, and specifically Neoplatonism, with a chain of being. So I don't think it's unique to Greek thought, but it's definitely central to Greek thought, the idea of a chain of being from the, the one at the top down to the lowest forms of matter at the bottom. And, you know, the gods are at the top, and men are somewhere in the middle, and then animals, and then plants, and then stones, and dirt, things like this. So there's a continuous chain of being from the lowest forms of existence up to the highest forms of existence. In Neoplatonism, which was the form that was popular in the, these early centuries, they had the, the, the pinnacle of the chain of being they called the one. The one was unconscious unknowable, impersonal. Uh, Then they had the logos, or the word, which is very far from the one, but second on the chain of being. And then they had the spirit. Now, I have to admit, this is a fairly astonishing thing, but you can see why the early church may have been somewhat attracted to this terminology since it was the world they were living in, even though, as we'll see, these things have, have nothing to do with the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. But the, the chain of being, it's continuous. That's an important point. It's a continuous chain of being from the one at the top down to the lowest forms of existence at the bottom. So that's the intellectual climate. The political climate was the messianic Roman state. And as you know, there was severe persecution in the early church 
And it was never continuous. It was not continuous in time. It was also not continuous geographically. The Roman Empire was huge. But the church had been actively persecuted from the days of the apostles who were put to death by the Roman emperors up basically to Constantine the Great, who had converted to Christianity, allegedly, or perhaps he did, uh, in, in the year 312. Constantine was the emperor in the West. There were different emperors. He was the emperor in the West, in the area of Britain and, and what's now Spain and France. He marched on Rome, and the night before he met the armies of the emperor in Rome, he supposedly had this vision where he saw the cross saying, in this sign you will conquer, and he had the device of the Christian cross put on all the shields of his army, and they went out and they won the battle. So if you can imagine many of these bishops, the bishops who, bishops who were at the Council of Nicaea had been tortured for their faith by the Roman Empire. Many of them were crippled. Many of them were blind. Uh, and now they had an emperor who was professing the Christian faith and legalizing Christianity and making it a permissible religion in the Roman Empire. But, but previously, the, the Roman Empire itself represented the unity of the divine and the human. So the Roman emperor was God explicitly or the representative of God. Now, in contrast to that, obviously Christianity claims an absolute division between the divine and the human. Um, there's, there's no human order on earth that can claim to be divine or the final order within a Christian worldview. So Christians rejected that picture of this messianic divine Roman state. Uh, Christianity places all created orders, including the state, are under the rule of God. And that's what the Roman emperors wouldn't tolerate. Um, Eric Vogelin was a, he was a philosopher of religion in the early 20th century. And he said this, which is, I think this is a fairly astonishing quote. He says, what made Christianity so dangerous was its uncompromising, radical de-divinization of the world. So the classical world sees the state as divine and messianic and the emperor either as divine himself or as the mediator or the representative of the divine on earth and Christianity completely rejects that. Um, so that was the political context prior to Constantine. Yeah, well, well, we'll talk about that a little bit, specifically with Arius and the, and the controversy of Nicaea. Um, it's quite interesting. Every pagan culture, historically, that I'm aware, any, every great pagan culture or empire has claimed divinity for itself. So the Babylonians, I mean, 
Nebuchadnezzar puts up that statue and everyone has to bow down and worship it. That's, I think it's fairly obviously a statue of himself. The Roman Empire, the Roman emperor claimed to be God. The Mayan emperors, the Mayan rulers claimed to be God. Uh, I mean, as late as World War II, the Japanese emperor claimed to be God. Uh, so this is, it's absolutely ubiquitous. And to me, it's quite interesting that as far as I know, there is no book. You, you would think of something that ubiquitous in all societies, there would be a, a body of literature studying this question, and there's not. Uh, I don't think that's an accident, but that's the way it is. So I don't know that there's a specific link between Neoplatonism and the, Greek, uh, the Roman emperor worship, but it, it pretty much existed in all of the ancient cultures. So you can, you know, as you know, this picture of the divine Roman emperor comes in fairly explicit conflict with the revelation of the God of the Bible. Uh, Psalm 95.6, God says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Or in Matthew, Jesus says, quoting, quoting the Old Testament, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So you've probably heard the Romans didn't mind introducing Jesus as another divinity into their pantheon. That was no problem for them. The problem for them was Christians rejecting the worship of the emperor on the basis of the claim of Jesus Christ that he is God and that there is no other. So in 312, Constantine defeated Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and he becomes the sole Roman emperor. In 313, the Edict of Milan is published, which basically legalizes Christianity. So in Greek and Roman religion, the method of salvation is that human beings ascend the chain of being to rise to God. That's how it works. That's the goal. That's what you want to do. You want to go up the chain of being to union with the one, to become united with God that way. So Arius was a bishop from Antioch originally, which is one of the major, um, what they called sees. It was one of the most important churches at the time. The five, mo the five really important churches in this era were Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, uh, Constantinople, which became the capital about the time of Constantine, and um, Alexandria, which is where Athanasius was, where Arius was, where Cyril was, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll talk about Cyril in a, week or, in a few weeks. Um, so Arius arrives in Alexandria in the early 4th century from Antioch, and... He's a priest. He's a presbyter. He's not a bishop. The bishop in Alexandria was named Alexander, and Athanasius was a young man at the time. He was a deacon in Alexander's church. Arius was, his thinking is Greek to the core. It's completely controlled by Greek philosophy, and he is attempting to reinterpret Christianity in terms of Greek philosophy. 
So for Arius, salvation is an upward move of the soul toward God, just like in the Greek chain of being. And he's also a rationalist, so he's constantly making these rationalistic arguments, such as if if God created everything, then God must have created the sun. The sun, the logos, cannot be uncreated, according to Arius. Now, apparently Arius was a very good speaker. He was very popular. Apparently he was quite uh, popular with the ladies and was, uh, he, he, was a, he was a popular priest. But uh, this, his views started to uh, come to the attention of Alexander, who was the Bishop of Alexandria. Now, what I understand is Alexander met with Arius. He tried to persuade him from... To, to reject his views, um, and Arius wouldn't listen to him, and there was a small local synod that met and condemned Arius. Uh, the leader of that synod was a man named Hosius, who became Constantine's theological advisor in the early days. So this small local council condemned Arius. Now, it's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read what's in your handout here. This is the text from Arius's Thalia. Now, interestingly, um, since Arius's work was condemned and basically none of his immediate work survived, we, we have what was handed down through Athanasius and through Alexander. There was a letter from Arius to Alexander but this is one of the things he wrote called the Thalia, so I want to read this. The other thing that's interesting, I think, as we see, as we look at this history and how it progresses, that both the, the Christian conception becomes more and more sophisticated and more self-consistent with its own presuppositions and with the scriptural revelation as history progresses, but the unbelieving philosophy also becomes more sophisticated as time goes on. And so this really one of the first really big controversies, one of the things that strikes me is just how clear and unsophisticated Arius is. So I'll read this and um, think about what he's saying here. And so God himself, as he really is, is inexpressible to all. He alone has no equal, no one similar, The Greek word is homoios, and no one of the same glory. We call him unbegotten in contrast to him who by nature is begotten. He means the son. We praise him as without beginning in contrast to him who has a beginning. He means the son, or what they would have called the logos or the word. We worship him as timeless in contrast to him who in time has come to exist. He who is without beginning made the Son a beginning of created things. He produced him as a Son for himself by begetting him. He, the Son, has none of the distinct characteristics of God's own being. The Greek is cat, not, hypostasis. Um, For he is not equal to, nor is he of the same being. And the word is homoousius, that's an important word, as him. God is wise, for he himself is the teacher of wisdom. Sufficient proof that God is invisible to all. 
He is invisible both to things which were made through the Son and also to the Son himself. So there is a triad, not in equal glories. Their beings, hypostases, are not mixed together among themselves. As far as their glories, one infinitely more glorious than the other. The Father in his essence is a foreigner to the Son because he exists without beginning. Understand that the monad eternally was, but the dyad, the monad he means the one, God, what we would think of as the Father, uh, the monad eternally was, but the dyad, that's two, was not before it came into existence. It immediately follows that although the Son did not exist, the Father was still God. Hence the Son, not being eternal, came into existence by the Father's will. He is the only begotten God, and this one is alien from all others. At God's will, the Son has the greatness and qualities that he has. So not by nature, not by his own divinity, not by his being, but by the, by the will of God. His existence from when and from whom and from then are all from God. He, though strong God, praises in part his superior. In brief, God is inexpressible to the Son, for he is in himself what he is, that is, indescribable. So the Son does not comprehend any of these things or have the understanding to explain them. For it is impossible for him to fathom the Father who is by himself. For the Son himself does not even know his own essence. For being Son, his existence is most certainly at the will of the Father. What reasoning allows that he who is from the Father should comprehend and know his own parent? For clearly that which has a beginning is not able to conceive of or grasp the existence of that which has no beginning. So, the Son is created, no doubt about it, it's clear as day, it's unambiguous. Also, the Father, or the One, doesn't even know Himself. Now, that's, that's the Greek idea. The One is unconscious, it's unknowable. Uh, so, first, Arius destroys the Son of God by saying He's created, He has a beginning, even if he's the first creation, still he's created before everything else. And there was a time when he was not. It destroys the knowledge of the Father because God doesn't even know himself. And the Son doesn't even know, know God. He doesn't know the Father. And finally, it, it destroys revelation because something that doesn't know itself and can't even be known by the Son cannot communicate or reveal himself to anyone else. So this is a holistic attack on the truths of Christianity. So this is going on in Alexandria. Constantine in Rome gets wind of it and first he writes a letter saying you guys should stop quarreling about these insignificant things, work it out among yourselves. But his advisor, Hosius, eventually persuades him that this is actually something serious that needs to be addressed. And so in 325, Hosius uh, prevails upon Constantine to call a general church council, and that was the Council of Nicaea. Now, you might not know, but... The Nicene Creed that we recite was not produced by the Council of Nicaea, believe it or not. The, the, the Council of Nicaea produced the Creed of Nicaea. The, count, the, the creed that we call the Nicene Creed 
is, was actually published by the Council of Constantinople a little over 50 years later, and technically it is the Niceano-Constantinopolitano Creed. But obviously, Pastor Booth can't say, please, <laughs> please stand, our confession of faith today is from the Niceano-Constantinopolitano Creed. Um, so, about 300 bishops assembled, Constantine invited 1,800 bishops from all the, all the known bishops of, of the church, um, and a, about 300 bishops came to the Council of Nicaea, and for almost all of them, it was their first time ever seeing the emperor. And I think you can kind of imagine, so apparently they're all sitting there at the beginning of the council, they're, they're all sitting there, and then it's announced that the emperor is coming in, and then the doors open, and the emperor walks in, dressed in purple, with his gold and his jewels, and this is a very impressive sight to the bishops who were gathered there, who, as I said, many of them had been tortured for their faith and were permanently injured uh, in suffering for their faith, and now they're seeing the Roman emperor himself convening this council to settle the, the truths uh, of the Christian faith. The, the minutes of the council did not survive, unfortunately. What we have is the writings of Athanasius and uh, church historians of the time who recorded what happened, but we don't have the actual minutes of the council, so we don't, we don't know exactly how many bishops were assembled, but it was around 300. Uh, Alexander was there. Arius was there. Several of Arius's supporters, including a guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is not to be confused with the church historian Eusebius of Caesarea, Eusebius of Nicomedia was a supporter of Arius, who eventually was the bishop who baptized Constantine on his deathbed. Alexander was there. Um, Athanasius was there. Athanasius at the time was not a bishop. He was still a deacon. He was in his late 20s. Um, they met for about a month. Now, the other thing to know is, communication being of what it was, most of the bishops who assembled probably didn't know what the meeting was about. They really didn't know what the issues were. And the it's a little hard for us to relate to because we have this fully developed doctrine of the Trinity that we've heard our whole lives. And so, you know, it seems obvious. One God, three persons, same in substance, equal in power and glory. But for these people, they didn't have all that, right? They're, they're before the Council of Nicaea. They're before all this had been settled and worked out. So there's a major element of what we, what the word is subordinationism, even in origin, for in, especially in origin, for instance, where even if they would have believed that the son was God, but still there, he's still subordinate, the son is still subordinate to the father. So there's a lot of variation in the beliefs of the bishops that were assembled at Nicaea. But they met for a month and published the Creed of Nicaea, which I printed here. And it's, it's quite close. We'll read it in a minute. But it's quite close to what we recite. But there are some significant differences. Um, 
it's interesting that apparently the Arians had these songs or chants that they would sing that were very catchy and people would repeat them and they would start chanting these things during the synod and the the bishops would cover their ears to not hear these chants of the followers of Arius. Um, but let's, let's read this and notice what some of the issues are. So, one, you know, one of the questions is, what, how, how are we saved? What is it that the Son does? Does the Son show us the way to God? Does he show us how we can ascend the chain of being to be united to God? Or does the Son come down from heaven as God and save us? You know, uh, Nicodemus says, it reminds me of Nicodemus in John 3. He comes to Jesus at night and says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. And I think the answer to that is that is false. Jesus is God himself who came to teach. To people who aren't Christians, these things seem insignificant. Like, what's the difference? A teacher uh, who came from God or God who came to teach. But it, it is, it's a difference between heaven and hell. And that's what Athanasius understood and Alexander and the bishops at Nicaea. So... This, is, this was the Creed of Nicaea published by the Council of Nicaea that they eventually signed. We believe in one God, the Father all-governing, creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is, from the usia of the Father. Usia means substance or essence. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, homoousius with the Father, that same substance with the Father. Remember, Arius specifically said he is not homoousius with the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth. So it's not that the Son is not the first creation, like Arius said. The Son is homoousius with the Father, by whom all creation came to be. Who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate. He doesn't show us the way to God. He's not someone else on the chain of being who guides us to our union with God. He comes down from heaven for our salvation and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered and the third day he rose and ascended into heaven and he will come to judge both the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but those who say, once that, by the way, that's, usually you might guess, that's not going to end up standing uh, as an adequate uh, exposition of what we believe about the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the things you'll notice is a significant difference between this creed and the, the Nicene Creed that we recite. But those who say, once he was not, or he was not before his generation, or became to be out of nothing, or who assert that he, the Son of God, is of a different hypostasis, or usia, I'll comment on those words in a second, or that he is a creature, or changeable, or mutable, 
the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. The problem was to find words that expressed the truth of the second person of the Trinity that Arius and his followers could not assent to. Um, Because Arius can recite the Apostles' Creed, but he can't recite the Creed of Nicaea. So they're specifically calling out these things, the different hypostasis, which is a Greek word for being or existence, or ousia, which is what we would think of as substance or essence, that he's a creature, changeable or mutable, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. So, in the end, only three of the assembled bishops refused to sign the creed. It was Arius himself and two of his followers from Libya. They were exiled from the Roman Empire. Um, The key word for sure is this word homoousius, and following the, the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius basically spends the rest of his life defending this theology of Nicaea in this, in this concept of homoousius, the same substance. And um, in the next class probably we'll look at what happened after this and how there were lots of competing ideas. There was a, this didn't really settle. It was still a very controversial, it ended up being a very controversial word and a lot of bishops wanted to say homoousius with an I in the middle, which is he is of like substance with the Father, not the same substance. So that was, that was an ongoing battle. Yeah. Can you help us understand historically how does this council of Nicaea relate to when was the canon of Scripture decided upon? Because when you read about Arius, I was like, hasn't he ever read the Gospel of John or Colossians? Yeah. But can you help, help us understand where all this relates? Had he read John and Colossians in their full and acknowledged them as divine record? My understanding is that the debates at Nicaea were, on both sides, were quite heavily attempting to show their position from Scripture. When was the canon of Scripture accepted? When was that decided? Probably the, the first published list of the books of the Bible that we accept now, I think, was about the same time. Do you know? It's about the same time. I can't think of what came before or after. It's around the same time. What yeah. I remember is when people latch on to an idea, that idea can drive the way they read scripture so they fit everything into that idea. And that's not only a risk for Arius, which of course fell into, it's a risk for all of us as well. Yeah. And, and all the heresies from Arius down to neo-Orthodoxy today, they want to use the language of the Bible or even the historic creeds and reinterpret them in terms of their own philosophical frameworks. Um, So just a few minutes left, but what happened immediately after, um, Arius was exiled, but just two and a half years later, he contacted Emperor Constantine with a confession of faith that he had written. It's basically the Apostles' Creed. And it, but it didn't say, it didn't use the word homoousius or refer to anything at Nicaea, but Constantine, 
who's not a theologian, liked what Arius had written and ordered that he be restored to fellowship. So Arius arrived back in Alexandria in triumph and he was the, the, the day that he was going to go to the church, there was this huge procession because remember, he, he was... He was pop. I mean, Alexander and Athanasius were popular in Alexandria, but Arius had a strong base of support in Alexandria as well. And with the imperial order, he was proceeding to the church to be restored to fellowship. The night before, Bishop Alexander was in the church on his face, and he cried out to God saying, God, please do not let Arius return to this church, but if you do, then take me. And on the, in the procession, on the way to the church, Arius, who was an old man, I think he was 82 or 83 at the time, uh, started to have some gastric difficulties, went into a porta potty or whatever the equivalent is there, and a short while later, they found him with his intestines blown out in the, in the bottom of the latrine. So you can imagine the impact that would have had on... Christians in the fourth century who saw this very clearly as the judgment of God. He's literally on his way to the church, you know, to, to go back to it. So. so twice you used the word exile, but I never heard you say the word excommunicated. Can you speak on this? Was this a political movement against Arius and not a religious movement? No, he was they were they were he was an, they were anathematized by the Catholic by the bishops assembled in the Catholic Church. Well, it's it, it, it means yeah. No, that's fine. Precisely what his state was politically and in the church. He was anathematized, condemned, excommunicated by the church, and exiled by the Roman emperor. Because by this time, you know, Rome, Constantine. I mean, this is where the mixing or integration of the church and the state really gets off the ground. So Constantine is the one who calls the council. He kind of sees himself as the, you know, the governing person at the council. Nate, do you... I was going to say, like, not signing the decree with Nicaea would have essentially been that. Because the next line says, if you don't, like, if you don't, basically it says, like, if you don't approve this, like, you're So I think that's essentially excommunication. Yeah, it was. Uh, and this is what happens. So time to close, but um, maybe I'll talk a little more next time about why the Roman emperors were predisposed toward Arianism. Uh, a few things to notice. One, in what we recite, one of the things that was changed by the Western church is from we believe to I believe. So when we recite the creeds, we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The original were written, we believe. But that difference, and the Eastern Church to this day still says, we believe. The Western Church says, I believe. Because in the Western Church, the faith of the individual has priority over the faith of the confessing church. And so that's significant. And also, um, the Western Church later adds filioque that 
the Spirit proceeds from the Son. That'll be uh, more in the, in, the, in the creed that follows. The other thing that's significant about this is emphasis on historical events in this creed. These are not abstract ideas or claims about reality as such. It says, for us men and for our salvation, he came down and was incarnate, becoming human, suffered, and the third day he rose. That's another thing that's unique about the Christian religion is that the foundational claims of our faith are claims about events that happened in history. Uh, and, and that is, is clear in this creed as well. So let's close there, and perhaps next time we'll, I'll talk a little bit about what happened in the aftermath of Nicaea and, and how that ended up requiring another council, which was the first council of Constantinople about 50 years later. So, um, Peter, would you mind to close us in prayer, please? Our gracious God of heaven, we do thank you for how you have worked through the efforts of men to bring forth the truth of your word, both from the writing of your scriptures as well as to helping to identify and clarify basic thoughts about what your word tells us. We can thank you for Ben and his teaching today, and we do pray that you Christ is our Lord and Savior. Pray this in his name.